it really has opened my eyes that I, I always felt like I couldn't call on anybody. And mm-hmm. I, I don't have any really close friends. I've become very, very close to my caretaker. And I said something to her that, uh, you know, I felt badly that my sister has cancer, that she's fighting, that I wasn't going to be able to go out there, that I wish that his son and daughter would come out and stay. And my caretaker said, well, don't be silly. I'll stay with him for three days, whatever, just so you can go out and see her. Mm. And I, I, I would not have taken that step to ask her. And then it turns out that all these other people who the wives of people who have worked with him for so long and have admired him have been there for help for me. So we also did set up, uh, started a Zoom after the pandemic. We started a Zoom thing with just the wives. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that there were three people that were in um, situations where they really just needed to talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. And this has been very, very helpful. And it, it allowed me to think I could call them up and ask them to do something. And, you know, that I had people out there that I just had to get over the hump of not wanting to impose. I'm Matt Davis. And I'm Donovan Most. You're listening to Mining Memory, a podcast devoted to exploring research on Alzheimer's disease and other related dimensions. So in our last episode, we talked about caregivers for individuals living with dementia. In this very special episode, or part two of our series, we'll get to know someone with lived experience as a caregiver. The hope here is to give us a better understanding of what it's like to be in the role of a caregiver, the unique challenges, and the various ups and downs that come with the territory. Uh, Dr. Amanda Leggett is back with us again. Welcome, welcome, Amanda. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Amanda, do you want to take it away and introduce our guest? Sure, I would love to. So, hello again, everyone. And I am so happy to be introducing you to Peggy Arden today, who is a caregiver for her husband with Alzheimer's disease. Um, She is such a wise voice in the way that she approaches care and a great advocate for other individuals providing care. So I, I am just really grateful to her for joining us and can't wait to hear what all she has to share with you today. So I was wondering first, Peggy, if you could start by telling Matt and Donovan a little bit about yourself, including you know, when and how caregiving began to be a part of your life. Well, uh, first of all, I, I want to preface it by thanking you very much for having me here but also to let you know that I'm 80 years old and I'm caring for my 94-year-old husband who was a former professor at University of Michigan and um, at Princeton University and University of Rochester. He was a dean. He is very, very, very um, brilliant. And so I think that that provides a little bit more of a challenge than some things because he's He's more curious. He's, uh, uh, you know, very accomplished. And probably the biggest thing is the humiliation of letting someone know that he has Alzheimer's or that he needs a walker or needs a wheelchair. You know, uh, when we went to walk to get the mail the other day, he said, I don't want anyone thinking that I'm, I'm, I'm disabled. 
And so there's this term that is just a real stigma, I think more so to people that are in his generation than possibly my generation, because we're accepting it as something that's pretty widespread. Uh, I first noticed that we might have a problem when we were driving down to visit his brother in Florida. And I noticed that there was just seemingly a lot of erratic driving that I had not noticed before. And at that point, I had to, I was just very upset. And I said, okay, let me out. I'm just going to go rent a car and I'll, I'll meet you there. And at that point, he realized that I was serious, that I needed to take over the wheel at, uh, and, and drive. Uh, before that, we had had uh, a couple, only two incidents. One was in, we were hiking in China, and he had to be carried off the mountain because he couldn't stand up straight, kind of just a really bizarre situation. And the same thing happened about two years later in um, uh, Arizona, Sedona, Arizona, and we had to have him carried off. And at that time, I was at my brother-in-law's home, my sister's and brother-in-law's home, and they said, we've got to get him into the doctor to get CAT scans. So we have a CAT scan from pretty early in in the time frame. Um, and we basically, he did not really acknowledge what had happened when we told the doctors at U of M what had happened. He said, well, that wasn't what happened at all. I could per- walk perfectly well. It was just this mm-hmm. very hostile, um, defensive reaction. From then on, it's been uh, to a point where at this point now, he really can't understand most television programs and doesn't understand he'll ask me things like like was obama president or uh, uh who is he married to mm-hmm. um uh he asked me the other day when i first met his father well his father died in 1988 we weren't married until 2004 so there's a lot of like disjointed from reality questions that we're getting now, but he still needs to have these conversations, needs to have discussion. And one of the things that was really interesting was that he needed to be able to read. And I did not realize for almost a year that he was actually having trouble reading. So what I did was get the books that he wanted to read, or I thought that he'd be interested in reading. I got them on Kindle. Since we did that, which was uh, uh, early in the pandemic, probably maybe May of 2020, he has read all kinds of books and he's gone all the way through. Has a little bit of problem every once in a while. He was asking what this word, uh, this has started more frequently. He'll ask what a word means and I've shown him how to just highlight that word and the meaning comes up but he can't remember that. that that's mm-hmm. so. But that's still okay because I've shown my caretakers that that's what they can do. One of our caretakers, I have three caretakers, one uh, of whom, one is uh, a graduate of University of Michigan, a degree in history. And he's been very good because he discusses current events, historical uh, uh, events, um, he was in the military, as was Bruce. Bruce was in, had enlisted in World War uh, II, 
and is very proud of being in the Navy. Uh, so they have a good relationship. He comes, the, that caretaker comes uh, to, uh, twice a week for four to five hours on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We have another caretaker who comes to help me out a little bit, as well as to stay with him when I need to do major grocery shopping or whatever. And she is very good at engaging him in uh, human relationship discussions, you know, just asking him questions or whatever. Uh, And she comes two days a week for, again, four to five hours. And then we just recently, I was in the hospital with what I thought was a heart attack. And the, um, my daughter and son said, mom, we've got to get another person in here. And so we hired an agency. Actually, we hired a person from the agency that, uh, is very good. And, uh, Mohammed is, uh, amazing because he has massage skills and he was hired to come in and bathe Bruce, but that's something that there's no way I could sell mm-hmm. him on that. Uh, but he does shave him, and he uh, he does shave him, and he does massage on his feet, and he does exercises with him. Uh, very good exercises to try to build the core balance. He is now basically wearing Depends or products all the time, twenty four seven. That has made a big difference in how we've interacted because he's still very embarrassed and, you know, I'll knock on the door and say, may I help? And he'll always say, no, he'll say, I don't need that. I can do that myself. And there's no way he can maintain the quality level of cleanliness that I think he should have. And he also, uh, I have to shower him. uh, And we were kind of on a, every other day shower routine, which has seemed to work. Um, even though I would like to do it every day, it's, mm-hmm. it's a very long process to get him dressed. He, he very, it, it, it basically consumes all morning to get him up showered and dressed. It's just very time intensive, very, very time intensive. So can I um, just step back a minute and for you to think about the, say the process of him getting diagnosed. It's interesting because some, uh, I think some people say have, um, better insight into the fact that maybe something is changing. They're maybe not thinking as clearly or their memory has changed and other people don't, and they don't acknowledge that, that their, you know, cognitive abilities are changing. Can you talk about that for him? He basically has has anosognosia. Okay. And that's A-N-A-S-O-G-N-O-S-I-A. And that basically means that they don't know that they have anything wrong with them, anything at all wrong with them. Uh, and they don't acknowledge that all the tests that have been done and and everything that the doctors have told them. They're not even really registering. And And so that would make your job a lot harder. A lot harder, right. Right. But in um, caretaker groups that I'm involved in, uh, I'm finding that there are a lot of people that are dealing with that same situation. And I happen to have a daughter that mentioned that to me. And then I started reading about it and I thought, bingo, that's it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's something that 
it's it's hard to find information about it. And you keep saying, well, how can you not know that you're having problems or when you're eating and you start eating with your fork and putting the food on with your finger, using it as a, your fingers as a pusher, which just started relatively recently. Um, just things that are so far away from a professional person's demeanor and understanding. Um, and then you just say to yourself, oh, guess that's something I'm just going to accept. He is still um, sleeping well. He was sleeping probably uh, about 15, 16 hours a day. Now he's uh, basically down to, uh, he, he's sleeping more or less a normal schedule. He will take a nap in the afternoons. And sometimes just to save myself and give myself a little more time, I will let him sleep a little bit longer. But he is, I'm trying to get, the doctor had recommended that we try to keep a routine, getting him up at a certain time. We were ending up by having breakfast anywhere from one o'clock to 4.30 in the mm. afternoon. And so now we've pretty much got it. It's always before one. And sometimes it's as early as 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, dinner is usually what we're doing is not having lunch. We're just at doing breakfast and uh, a late breakfast usually and an early dinner, which seems to be working quite well. I was going to say, Peggy, you show great adaptability in terms of, you know, your schedule and like you mentioned, the little finger bowl and towel at the table and even increasing the text size of the Kindle are all ways that you've kind of helped to adapt to his current abilities. And I think it's really neat to see. Well, I've tried using as much creativity as possible. I even got some, some bibs that were supposed to be pretty good, but I've got to invent my own and so... So something that's similar, but that uh, is a little bit bit more palatable for him to use. And what we were doing when we used a bib, we were both using it. And we've even been in situations where we had company over and we had ribs and everybody got a bib. Mm -hmm. So it made it not quite as, oh, wow, look, he's acting like a child, but but the relationship between working with him as a two-year-old and a 94-year-old, a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was going to ask, you know, you shared some of the tasks that you help with, like, you know, with bathing or dressing and the like. What does kind of a typical day look like for you in your quote-unquote kind of job as a caregiver? What are the typical things that you're helping with on an average day? Okay. Uh, first of all, I'm helping with all bathroom things. And um, we're, we've found a number of products that are uh, seem to work. And I have... Um, uh, found some suppliers that have some things like a company called Because, which I found on uh, a Facebook actually, uh, will actually deliver the uh, black men's briefs every month to you. We've also, uh, you know, tried looking at other kinds of suppliers that will do things like the the guys that were doing the exercise. The, the cleanup is usually all morning, basically. The cleanup and showering, 
I do have a shower with a bench in it. What I usually do is take my shoes and socks off and I stand in there. We have grab bars on the back wall, grab bar, vertical grab bars on either side of the doorway as you get in. And then there is a bench in there. You've made um, a lot of like environmental modifications. Right. Kind of facilitate. Yeah, that's a yeah. really good way to say it, environmental okay. modifications. So it sounds like a lot of the day is kind of filled with some of these more personal care tasks. And then like you described earlier, you know, helping him like facilitate his reading and having, you know, conversations. Anything and else you would share about? Kind of I do try to make sure that we, we eat very, very well and well-balanced meals. And he, again, is, as I said, is still eating um, a very good, healthy diet. A lot of different tasks that you have on your shoulders, Peggy. What would you say is the most difficult parts for you about caring for your husband? I think probably um, the the anger that he feels with the confrontational thing when he says, no, I don't need any help. Mm. And then I say, but remember, I'm your spa, spa person, that this is your spa. I'm here to take care of you. Uh, and so then all of a sudden he'll lower the level of, of anxiety and confrontation, mm-hmm. um, which, which helps a lot that he, he at least will do that. Uh, because there are some people that I know just, keep on being angry. And that's mm-hmm. the way he was first. We did, uh, he is on two Celexa, uh, two five milligrams of Celexa uh, every morning. And that has made a big difference. And then I have basically put him on t- to try to stop him from sleeping so much. Coffee was not working. Coffee was causing major bowel problems. And so I've given him a one Excedrin, which has caffeine and uh, aspirin and Tylenol in it, which is basically a, just one in the morning when he gets up. And so that gives him just this little coffee boost. Mm-hmm. And that seems to work very, very well. Um, and the pandemic has actually been very, very, very good because we moved the May before the pandemic started mm-hmm. and he was so he did, he did not know we were moving i had everything set up in this new condo new to him condo and we just from his birthday on we just lived over here and then everybody got shut down during the pandemic mm-hmm. you know the, the beginning of march and so it was he could no longer walk in the downtown area at all that he was here in Canton and he would just have to accept it. Yeah. In a sense, the pandemic kind of helped facilitate oh my that transition. Oh yeah. my gosh. It was, it was the best thing that could have happened for me yeah. personally. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I was going to say, so you've talked about the three aides or helpers that come into your home. What else do you do, Peggy, when you need a break from caregiving? Well, uh, I do uh, enjoy making Costco runs or Sam's Club runs, and so it's usually grocery shopping, but now that's kind of down to like once every two weeks or whatever. I did, when I moved back here, I knew what was going to be happening, and so I did, one of the things I bought right away was a, a big freezer and uh, a, an extra refrigerator so I could 
basically stock up. I little did I know mm-hmm. how much I'd have to stock up, but mm-hmm. um, that's been very helpful. And I do enjoy cooking. And he will sit there and he'll read or watch something uh, while I uh, am cooking. He does enjoy that uh, watching me cook. And I do ha- involve him in making cookies. He was using my tortilla press to press down these. Uh, oatmeal cookies that I make and he mm. make and he liked that a lot. And it was his job to to press them down and mm-hmm. I'd hand him the papers and he'd get them nice and flat. And they, they, he felt a feeling of accomplishment. Yeah. Made him uh, part of the team helping you. He also has come outside, we'll set a chair up. I do enjoy gardening and I've done some extensive gardens around my condo. And he does come out. In fact, last year we were, our condo backs up to a creek and the creek had overgrown with invasive species. And so I took my little chainsaw that I have and went out there and just Mm -hmm. chopped all this invasive species down. And so we had him cutting up branches with the clippers Mm -hmm. and he was able to do that. And he, he actually enjoyed it. And one of the people on one of the caretaker meetings I was on said that she gives her husband the blower to blow leaves and things. So I had suggested that to one of my caretakers. And she said, I had him do that. She said, I was scared to death that he was going to fall. But Mm. he was sitting in the chair for the most part, using the blower to blow the stuff off the deck. Mm. And so, you know, I'm getting clues and ideas from some of these other people that are in caregiver meetings. I mean, basically um, three caregiver groups that are run by Mercy Hospital and um, uh, Alzheimer's Association. And and being in those kind of groups where you meet so many people that are just on the first path, the first steps of learning what it's all about uh, is so important to be able to talk to them and say to them, you know, the best thing in the world is if you could just get somebody, which is what I did. I got somebody to come in way before Bruce needed it, just to come in. And um, it was presumably to help me after I had back surgery. And she came in and uh, his daughter actually interviewed the people with me and, uh, that worked out really well because it just became today's Suzanne's date. You know, the Tuesday or th- Monday and Friday were Suzanne's day or on a Wednesday. But what really helped was when I did have to go to the hospital for the heart attack, um, I had people there mm-hmm. that could come and stay overnight. Now, at this point, it, you know, there's. If I had waited till this point, that that would have been the hardest sell of my life to try mm-hmm. and get convinced to allow it. I was going to say, Peggy. So I know you you're very fortunate. You have a daughter who has expertise in this area. I'm wondering back to when your husband was originally diagnosed. Did you receive any help or education from his medical providers regarding your caregiving role? No, but um, they, at that point in time, but when we had the beginning diagnosis, Dr. Billy was my, our doctor, and he had given me, there were a number of books to read, and I had, you know, basically, um, 
I had a lot of people giving me things to read and, and under, you know, understand that, you know, this was a whole new trail that I was going to be on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I say up, you know, until three and four and five in the morning reading some mm-hmm. of this. So I, I really knew what it was. And the idea that I've made rather complete lists of what, what was happening with him at that individual stage, I think has been very, very good for the doctors to be able to understand. We also did get palliative care in and uh, just so that when we need it, we're ready and he's familiar with the person. So my next question for you, Peggy, is how would you say being a caregiver has affected your relationships with other people in your life, whether it be your family, your friends? Well, it really has opened my eyes that I I always felt like I couldn't call on anybody. And I, I don't have any really close friends. I've become very, very close to my caretaker. And I said, something to her that, uh, you know, I felt badly that my sister has cancer, that she's fighting, that I wasn't going to be able to go out there, that I wish that his son and daughter would come out and stay. And my caretaker said, well, don't be silly. I'll stay with him for three days, whatever, just so you can go out and see her. Mm. And I, I, I would not have taken that step to ask her. And then it turns out that all these other people who, the wives of people who have worked with him for so long and have admired him, have been there for help for me. So we also did set up, uh, started a Zoom after the pandemic. We started a Zoom thing with just the wives. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that there were three people that were in um, situations where they really just needed to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. And this has been very, very helpful. And it, it allowed me to think I could call them up and ask them to do something. And, you know, that I had people out there that I just had to get over the hump of n- not wanting to impose mm-hmm. on them. And that that was my problem, not their problem, because they were feeling guilty that they hadn't volunteered. Yeah, no, this is really helpful. Thanks for, for sharing that. I It's it's neat to see the different ways that you can connect, like, especially now through Zoom and other ways that otherwise would be more difficult in, in a pandemic context, for example. So you also hear in caregiving a lot people talking about terms like stress or burden um, and thinking about caregiving. But I'm wondering are there things that you experience that you consider to be positive or rewarding as part of your care role? It's definitely very, 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 very stressful. It's, my son made the comment. He said, we feel as though we haven't been able to see you or talk with you, that you've just disowned our their children, my grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt so badly that I wasn't spending the time to be to be available for them. And uh, I have two, one, um, two uh, grandch- twin grandsons with a disability and with disabilities. And so I've been more responsive to them as opposed to the other people. So I do have regrets that I haven't seen my grandson 
uh, and granddaughter uh, at, at, from my son as much as um, I would like. And it's interesting because their her my daughter-in-law's father has Alzheimer's is kind of paralleling Bruce's uh, path that, you know, he's someone who's always been very fit and very strong mm-hmm. and very active physically um, has now has these horrendous things happening to them. Sure. Yeah. So, and I know you've been able to use all of the wisdom that you've gained and things you've learned from your caregiving experience to help others, which has been an incredible thing about you and giving back like as part of these groups that you're a part of and so forth. But is there anything, um, you know, about the care that you provide that you find kind of rewarding or that you enjoy about um, the caregiving role? Well, the fact that I'm, yes, I'm very, very grateful for the fact that I'm still capable, that Mm -hmm. I did have back surgery that put me, the doctor said, well, you know, if you don't have this back surgery now, I kept saying, well, I can't do this now. I can't have this surgery because... I'm caring for my husband with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And they said, but if you don't, you're going to be even further behind and you'll have more problems. So I'm glad that the doctors just talked turkey to me and said, Mm -hmm. you don't have any time to to wait. And Mm -hmm. that that was very, very smart because I, and my daughter was again pushing us, get moved out here whatever you have to do. And his son and daughter had basically approved the use of funds to, to move out here and get out of the situation that we were in. And that, that made a huge difference that I had that the luxury of something that I designed because I kept looking for apartments, home, you know, assisted living. And and those just weren't options that he would be able to understand or accept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was fortunate you were able to find the space that you had really custom designed. And yeah, so this next question might seem a little strange, um, but sometimes it's good for us to kind of take a step back and think about the labels and the language that we use. How do you feel about the term caregiver? Do you like that term or what do you think about it? um, I've heard another, I I don't mind it at all, Um, but I have heard... um, love givers or, or, um, something that was more, uh, that you were doing it out of love rather than just care. Yeah. I know care partner is one that's being used more too to kind of reflect this idea of partnering as opposed to giving and receiving. Well, I think that that probably, that that's probably better. Although what I didn't understand when some, someone used that for a a research project just recently um, was care partner. And Mm -hmm. I didn't know whether they were referring to me or the other person. And so I, I, I had to question it. Mm -hmm. I wrote it. I told them, this is what I think I'm using it as so that they understood my, uh, but um, I think that that is a, a, as long as it's expressed actually. Right. For both, for all people. 
clearly. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's interesting to hear you say that because I've thought about that too. It's like if you use the term care partner, then what do you call the recipient of, of the care? Yeah. Um, a final question from me, Peggy, would be kind of reflecting back on your time caring for your husband. Um, for others who may find themselves entering into this type of role, what would you want to say to them? Or is there anything else you think it's important for our podcast listeners to know about dementia care? Well, I think that what we really kind of need is one universal directory of all the best books that are available and guides. And it, it, this is something that you almost need a, uh, a, a trail guide for, for the whole path, because this path varies has a vast um, zigzag curve uh, to it, and mm-hmm. you suddenly think, "Oh, well, this is the worst thing that could happen." And then you think, "Oh my God, it could be go in a different, or it does go in a different direction." But it may be just for a short while. Mm-hmm. But that you basically need to have this collated uh, resource source log of people and uh, places that have open caretaker groups that people can join into. Mm -hmm. Um, And things, I mean, most people would, until I started on Zoom with my daughter's groups, I really didn't know what Zoom was. And there are still people out there that have no idea what Zoom is because I happen to be pretty uh, technologically savvy, but I had never gone this route. And now people know about that. Younger people know about it because their kids have been on Zoom or whatever, but still a lot of the people that are in the age group haven't. I also think that the University of Michigan has done an incredible job of some of these presentations that have been open to um, caregivers. And I've taken caregivers to, uh, like Bruno, Bruno's um, symposiums that mm-hmm. he's he's given uh, at different places before the pandemic, um, and that just was a real eye-opening thing. The other thing that was amazing to me was, uh, and I had someone else whose uh, father was the same age as my husband, and they had ju- were just starting the path. And I said, you, you must go to this uh, Tipa Snow meeting with mm-hmm. me. And there was one offered by one of the senior uh, uh, mm-hmm. independent living places. And I think the f- three of us agreed that it was probably one of the best seminars that we had ever seen. It's because one of the things she did was that putting her hands up what they see is actually what you see when you put your hands, what mm-hmm. someone with Alzheimer's sees is what you see when you put your hands up like that. Mm-hmm. that th- there are so many things that are diminished that you may not even know that are diminished. Right. For example, the doctors, eye doctors were saying, oh yeah, his vision hasn't changed. It's really good. But she, she was asking him the question, how do you think your vision is? How, do you think your vision's changed? And he says very confidently, no, I think it's, it's pretty mm-hmm. good. You know, mm-hmm. and then I realized, hey, wait a minute. You know, we've got some real problems mm-hmm. that something he enjoyed so much 
he couldn't do any longer, right? Because of his eyesight. So we can uh, we can wrap up now. Um, Peggy and Amanda both, thank you both so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Um, Peggy, in particular, there are sort of two things that really stuck out uh, to me from hearing you speak. And I think in my clinical experience, um, not that we rate or grade caregivers, but I think the <laughs> caregivers who maybe do the the best um, are, are ones who are creative. And I think um, what you've described about sort of modifying and adapting the Kindle, modifying and adapting your meal times and the bedtime um, really highlights sort of creativity or kind of relaxing the rules a little bit around what kind of day-to-day life looks like. And I think that's really critical skill for caregivers. And the other one I think is you described a number of times how you've kind of modified the environment. And so both the physical environment that you're living in that you've designed and modified further, but also thinking about the environment that your husband is is living in. And so thinking about the social opportunities where you wanted to continue those, but you just slightly tweaked them and modified them. So instead of maybe a bunch of people coming over, it was just one or two couples coming over. So you could maintain what was really enjoyable to him about that interaction, but you also reduced the potential for it to be sort of an overwhelming situation for him. Um, and so thank you so much for, for sharing with us. Um, I, I I think, um, uh, you you clearly are are very good at what you do. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, I do feel like I'm, you know, he deserves the best. And I think that my doctors have also said to me that they can't believe the, the work that I'm doing that, Yeah. And something I took away too, that I think you really reflect so well, Peggy, is like caregiving is, is a life. It's kind of similar to academia where we're lifelong learners. There's always more to learn and understand in ways that we can grow. And you've really reflected that I think in your care practice too, of like continually reading and attending workshops and working with other people who are going through similar situations. And all of these are ways that we can, you know, gain new skills or grow or support others. Yeah. Yeah, sharing it with with the people who may not have it now, but, Mm -hmm. you know, if they see somebody that is doing something a little bit different that might make them think about it if they, one of their friends has Alzheimer's or or one of their parents has Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say that one of the questions that I had coming into these segments was, you know, what does successful caregiving look like? And Peggy, I think you just answered it for me hearing your story. Thank you very much. That you have no idea how rewarding being and the positive feedback that I'm getting from the programs, this the research programs that I've been involved in recently, how good that feels to me. And it it's kind of like, you know, a nice, a very nice feeling. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Other episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as directly from us at capra.med.umich.edu, where a full transcript of this episode is also available. On our website, you'll also find links to our seminar series and the data products we've created for dementia research. 
Music and engineering for this podcast was provided by Dan Langa. More information available at www.danlanga.com. Minding Memory is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network. Find more shows at uofmhealth.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from the National Institute on Aging at the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the NIH or the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon. Thank you.